Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. In this episode, I'm chatting to Dr. Graham Hoare, OBE, Chairman of Ford of Britain and Executive Director of Business Transformation. This year, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Ford answered the call of the UK government to join forces with other British companies to shift their production to ventilators. Graham walks me through how this hugely complex project worked, how Ford collaborated with many other companies in the UK and across the globe, and shares tons of key insights and learnings from this intense project relevant for any company today looking to innovate and meet huge goals. Graham, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Why don't you start by giving us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? I'm Dr. Graham Hoare. I'm the chairman of Ford in the UK, but also the uh, executive director for our transformation program here in the UK, restructuring our business and leaning into the future. So let's dive right into the reason we've got you on here to chat, starting with the call to arms for industries with the Ventilator Challenge UK. So this was announced and you guys had to respond. Tell us a little bit about those early days and what this challenge was all about. Indeed. um, It was a a very interesting time. In the first quarter of this year, uh, 2020, um, the Prime Minister picked up the phone to a number of industry leaders and said, we really need your help. Effectively, coronavirus was gripping the nation and there was a clear understanding that we hadn't got sufficient ventilator capacity and other activities required for the NHS. And so the Prime Minister said, let's get the best that we can in Britain to drive behind this requirement and see what can be done. And he called us together as an industry, about 100 industry leaders came together on a call. And ultimately, he said, it's in your hands, please help, the country needs you. A number of us were able to join together very quickly into the programme and unite as a cross-functional team. So this was obviously a consortium of many different companies. Tell us a little bit about who those players were and how you all worked together. We had the great opportunity of bringing some of the best companies together in the UK. Um, Great engineers at the helms of those companies. And we had the support of the senior teams from those companies. So... Very early on in the conversation with Ford, uh, when this became an opportunity for us, a conversation with Bill Ford was had and Bill just said, let's do what it takes. And that's the kind of commitment you need at a company level. And that was the case for each of the partners that joined together, whether it be Ford, McLaren, Siemens or Airbus. Those companies just came together and they had top to bottom commitment from those companies. And so... You know, it's great to work with the people, but the companies themselves really did everything they could do to make this dream happen. Tell us a little bit about what that brief even looked like, because, you know, I'm sure you'll be well aware when you're um, getting asked to do things, whether it's from clients, whether it's from governments or whatever, you're normally getting quite detailed sort of requests for proposals and whatnot. Getting on a call with 100 companies and saying, hello, we just need your help and we don't really know exactly what we're looking for. I mean, how did that even work out? How did that transpire? So the the context was actually some comments that uh, Boris Johnson had made in the press on the Sunday evening. Um, I phoned into government that night and said, I've heard what Boris has said on news. 
what can we do to help? It was two days later when he called us together as a, a community to explain the aspiration. And effectively, what he wanted to do was build a capability quickly to build about more than 10,000 ventilators and do that in weeks rather than years. And there was a specification that he had been working on with his team, his medical team and the clinicians. And that was a rapid ventilator specification. And that was just coming out of the works. So he said, that's the brief. It's a very broad brief, but ultimately time is ticking. The partnership with the UK government was really fundamental. Not just asking the question of industry, which is what Boris Johnson did with Michael Gove right at the beginning, but also the connectivity that we had with the government at all levels to make this project happen. They were under tremendous pressure to solve the problem and do that in a matter of weeks. And so setting an unbelievable target, bringing industry together, defining a specification, I think was really brave and a remarkable achievement. And so I know I speak on behalf of my colleagues in appreciating the leadership that they demonstrated during this time and being great partners. We were putting some pretty difficult topics on the table and they were standing side by side with us every minute of every day. So how did the, the sort of organising of this consortium begin? You know, how did you within yourself decide, okay, this company is going to work with that one. We're going to do this separate thing over here. I mean, tell us a little bit about that kind of collaboration, that fast, uh, speedy collaboration that must have been needed. The collaboration that developed was remarkable. And it was a built up of a set of companies, some of whom had worked together in the past and some of whom had not worked together. I think the UK is, is relatively unique that even competitors collaborate quite constructively and quite quite effectively. And we do in the Automotive Council, and that's the grouping of all of the auto industry together in the UK. So many of us knew our partners in other companies. What we needed to do is try and have like-minded leaders who could add value and who weren't likely to be duplicating. So their capabilities were complementary. A guy called Dick Elsie, who runs a um, the manufacturing catapult for the UK, that's a collection of uh, research establishments. A few of my colleagues from McLaren um, and uh, Siemens joined forces uh, within about three days of that call and said, we think we can provide the right balance of skills to solve the problem. The question is, what was the problem we were trying to solve? We hadn't got a design. We knew what the rapid specification was. But actually to think of innovating and generating an all new product very, very quickly then certifying it and then producing it in weeks, we didn't think was credible. So we then worked with the government to look at established companies that had products that were close. And one of the main products we chose was the Penlon device. And that device was based on, let's call it building blocks from an anesthesia ventilator that was in existence. So we thought that was the most compelling way to achieve the objective quickly. So Ford don't make ventilators. Who was the company that was making the ventilators and how did you work with them? The product that we chose was based on an anesthesia ventilator, a much more expensive system that's used in operating theatres, but was reconfigured to meet a rapid ventilator specification, much, much cheaper, but maintaining much of the functionality. Um, and that was from a company called Penlon, a company based in Oxfordshire, they have about 120 people, some wonderful people in that company, very imaginative. And the origins of Penlon 
come from 1943, when actually a breathing device was developed for the Second World War. And they sprung to action to create that device back then for the Ministry of Defence. And literally in 2020, they sprung to life to create a device for COVID. So it was a great partnership. And uh, I really appreciated the engagement and the acceptance of the people of Penlon to these big companies that could have been a great threat. But actually, we have learned so much from one another. That is a lovely point, actually, because it is interesting, this idea of small companies, big companies, intellectual property. And, you know, now that you guys have learned how to do this, you know, how do you manage that kind of relationship and that threat when it's back to normal business versus, you know, just pulling together and trying to solve a big problem now? I'm with you. The The challenge of big companies and small companies working together has been one that, frankly, has been difficult for many, many, many years since my career has, has started, I think. But actually what this has taught us is it's about personal relationships and it's about very, very quickly developing that level of integrity. You can move fast and you can move uh, respectfully together if you are transparent, open and you don't have an agenda. We shared openly our belief in what we needed to do with Penlon and they shared it with us as a consortium and we didn't hold any punches. We were both supportive of one another, but we were both direct when we needed to be. But most importantly, we listened to that company and their employees because they were tremendously knowledgeable. They just didn't understand how to make 400 a day. So we put our skills together with their skills and they solved some amazing problems so very much, I think, big companies and small companies can work together. We occasionally will need to throw away the rule book because often a 50-page non-disclosure agreement or a contract between us won't be very credible. We'll need to be a lot more nimble. But ultimately, I think having the trust, having the personal relationships, it will work. And of course, Ford is, a, as you mentioned earlier on, an automotive company. You guys make cars. What was your role in helping create a ventilator? These are very different products, right? Absolutely. And uh, you've got companies like Ford Motor Company with 10,000 people in the UK, Airbus, Siemens. These are powerhouses of industry. And how do these huge companies work with a small company where the small company has the knowledge? So we could provide industrial insight. We could provide innovation but actually we didn't have the essence of the product right at the beginning. So very much it was trying to work with a very small company without crushing that company. We needed to inspire those people to work with us and they had a great leader. So their CEO was very forward thinking and he reached out to us and said, you know, I want to embrace anything that we can do to solve this problem. So my doors are open, my technology is available, let's work together. And that partnership, formed literally in hours and certainly within two days. We knew what we were going to do. We'd signed confidentiality agreements together. Decisions that would usually take weeks and weeks and many, many hours of legal preparation, we were making in minutes and hours. And that really led the right behaviour for how we were going to run the whole programme. So I want to focus on the sort of the beginning of this project, because of course, as you mentioned, so many things had to happen very quickly, whether it was, as you say, signing documents, just getting in touch with the right people, making sure you get approvals on things. And, you know, in the middle of a pandemic or rather the start of a pandemic, perhaps um, you could put it, 
we're not allowed to come anywhere near each other physically. Um, so, of course, most of this would have had to be done remotely. What was the role of technology and different kind of, I guess, ways of working and products that allowed you to do this really intense collaboration? So the first thing that was fundamental is making sure the right companies were coming together. So we chose the right companies who were capable of working very fast and working together. And that meant geographically, they were many, many miles apart. So we had to work virtually immediately. Half of the people on the steering team, so the, the senior team worked together, although we avoided the stripes, uh, we, we brought people together because of their capabilities and their competencies. The senior team got together and effectively half of us had never met. So we were video dating, if you like, extremely quickly and working out how our strengths could play together. Um, so we used Microsoft Teams for many of our communications and that really got the dialogue flowing. Often we were on calls two, three, four, five times a day, day and night as a team. And we got to know each other in a way that I didn't think we'd ever be able to do without put that personal contact. Um, so that was the first major step, really creating a bond and so the whole traditional way of icebreakers and team building events, um, although they are tremendously valuable in this project, we didn't have the chance for that, but also the technology enabled us to do it without. And then, of course, what we needed to do is extract this hugely important technical data from the heads of a handful of people that some of whom had to self-isolate because of coronavirus. So how could we work together with that group without swamping them? and being potentially a risk of transmission ourselves. So we used HoloLens 2 technology to bridge between our employees in Airbus uh, or in Ford or McLaren into the Penlon organization. So those people could effectively be anywhere in the country to help unlock the potential of the uh, product. Oh, that's really interesting. I think, I mean, HoloLens for a lot of people still feels very sort of futuristic and something that's still very much in R&D. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what that looks like. Was it the idea of having almost like a virtual meeting or was it being able to see physically what people were working on? Give us a little bit more of a flavour of, of what that looks like. Well, what we tried to do was firstly to set context. We um, took a product that was hand-built um, these ventilators were being built or a, a version of them was being built by one or two individuals effectively through about a five-day period. So they would perform all the assembly tasks. We couldn't scale that knowledge or capability. So what we had to do is break the whole process down into about three or 400 individual steps and bring those into these factories that we built in Ford, in East London or in Airbus in North Wales. So the whole process had to change to get the scale and therefore the speed. But we had to take the essence of what the person who was building that hand-built unit knew and translate that into a full-scale production line. Exactly as Henry Ford had done over 100 years ago building cars, we had to do with a ventilator project. And so what the uh, technology allowed us to do is firstly work together with our facility in North Wales and East London and Oxford working concurrently with those locations um, to plan the facilities, to plan the investments that we're going to make. And we were making significant capital investments literally in two weeks. So we didn't want to miss a beat and we needed it to be right. And we needed the experts who couldn't travel to be seeing what we were trying to do and buying in and believing in, in what we were doing. But then also, as we started to ramp up production, we hit problems. 
uh, we either hit volume production problems or maybe the odd quality issue that we just couldn't understand, it was immediately possible for those specialists to be on the ground through HoloLens, looking at the problem, giving our technicians counsel and guidance on what they should look for, how they should interrogate. And having HoloLens at both ends allowed us to reproduce failures that we had at one end at the other end as well. So it really did speed up the time and it created an environment where we were fixing problems. We were identifying, defining critical problems and fixing them within 22 hours, 24 seven. And there were over 450 problems that we were managing. Often a hundred problems concurrently being managed in the business. So that's a tremendous volume to be joining together and HoloLens enabled us to join that environment together. Ford had aspired to use HoloLens and it was part of our 2020 plan to actually start to experiment with HoloLens in more detail. But this program gave us a massively compelling demand and literally the team were able to engage immediately and, and got value in the first day. It was a very quick incubation period, great learning, and, and it, it became an organic, natural way of working for the team. And that was going to be my next question was, you know, had you used it before? Because it's quite a thing to get used to a new technology and then also try and use it for such a, a humongous problem solving scaled task, you know? I completely agree. And often we like to experiment with technology first, you know, learn about it and then decide on how we apply it. This was effectively completely immersive immediately. Um, we were dependent on these lifelines and if they hadn't have worked, the program wouldn't have been delivered on the scale and timing that we needed it to. So they were extremely critical to the success of the program. But also the teams fired off one another and found new ways of using the tools. And now we're looking forward, uh, thinking about back to our core business of making cars. Uh, when we build prototypes, we often build them at, in one part of the world and the engineering team is separated from that team. We want to be able to build those prototypes live and have the engineers fully engaged that will save time and it will save money for us. More importantly, it will mean the quality of the product is better, quicker. But also, when we're installing massive capital equipment, often it's sourced from a different region of the world. Maybe the machine tool comes from Germany and is being installed in America. Then we often struggle to find the right person to get on the ground. We'll be able to now join together our teams in Germany, the US and the UK, so they can work on these machine tool installations that will save tens and hundreds of thousands on every trip we make. So what has this taught you about ways of working and processes um, moving forward at Ford? So I think the first thing I would say is uh, there are a couple of great examples of hackathons. Um, many of us as companies have used hackathon processes, but um, our Siemens colleagues actually brought a number of their apprentices, uh, 18 to 23-year-old apprentices together, to solve the critical problem on the Airbus production line. And that was the cycle time problem that was really going to impact the program. And by bringing those young people together and using the digital tools that they were familiar with, they often learned them through recently through college, they applied those tools immediately. They created a digital twin. They were able to dialogue together really efficiently using remote communications because they couldn't meet on the production line together, but they were also able to pilot software and 3D printing of the solution and then introduce that into production. And that change, which took four days through the whole process, 
was absolutely remarkable. They created a solution to a significant, a game-changing problem for us. They created the whole solution, piloting it, manufacturing it, and automating it, including writing the software for automation in those four short days. We would never have been able to do that in a traditional approach. So I think technology like that has really enabled this program and has shone the spotlight on it for me. As far as technologies like HoloLens, we think the application of those technologies, for example, the prototype business, is going to be really important. When we produce a car, we produce a series of prototypes ahead of time. Often they're built in a remote location, a different location to the engineering team. And therefore, the learning can often be lost or certainly it's not as strong because the engineers aren't on the ground where the prototype is being built. So HoloLens, for example, allows us to bridge that massive distance between those locations and create that connectivity so that literally the engineer that designed the product is going to be involved in the build process, learning as we go to improve the product. So the outcome will be much lower cost to produce prototypes for our products much shorter time and a great quality outcome. So those are a couple of examples, I think, of where technology really is enabling a new future in companies like Ford. Microsoft Dynamics 365 Remote Assist leverages mixed reality to enable remote technicians to collaborate with experts and solve problems in real time. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description. One of the things I find really interesting about um, you, Graham, and, and this kind of, um, I guess, case study or project, if it sounds diminishing to say that, is the fact that you guys collected your learnings as you went. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we do, just for those listening, I wonder if you could just summarise, I, I don't want to say the outcomes of the project because it's still going on, but just to give that context of what you guys managed to achieve, whether it's volume, time, give us those stats. So it was a really compressed program. It was about a total duration of about three months, so 12 weeks. We ended up spending about £120 million during that period. We delivered about 13,000 ventilators produced in production. Of the one production system, about 11,500. So that's about the equivalent of 25 years worth of production. Um, And that was scaled up over a four-week period. So we initiated the whole concept. We gained certification for the device uh, that included a clinical trial in three hospitals in the UK, then agreed by the NHS as being fit for purpose. And then we ramped up production. We then accelerated not only our production, but we spun up the supply base. Um, And the supply base, we're used to making nine or 10 units a week. And we were asking them for 400 units a day And so often our suppliers couldn't cope. The new supply base had to be born. Um, Often that meant internationally. So parts came from uh, Switzerland. Israel was really important as well. And obviously coronavirus was in the background. So international travel was really a problem. And every other country wanted ventilators too. So the core parts were also in demand. So we ended up with a huge discussion, huge engagement with the supply base on about 350 parts on each ventilator to to spin up the suppliers. Often it required a partnership with our UK government so that they could reinforce how important this project was to the people of the UK. 
Incredible. Okay, so let's talk a little about some of the learnings, some of the challenges, some of the things, the insights that you collected, shall we say, across the duration of this project. First of all, though, what inspired you to start collecting these learnings? Because it seems like you've done it in a very deliberate way and you've been very reflective already, even though it's not been going on for that long. Yeah, I think the one thing I would say is that it's probably the biggest roller coaster ride of my life. And I speak on behalf of my colleagues from McLaren and Siemens and Airbus as well. Um, we've all had uh, a number of projects around the world between us. And we've got a reasonable amount of experience and a reasonable amount of engineering experience. But never have we come across challenges like we experienced in this project. So there were moments of extreme high uh, when we'd solve problems or we'd defined our manufacturing strategy or we'd secured the supply agreements we need or the certification. Um, and then there were massive lows. Um, we'd have a, a shipping issue out of China, for example, where we physically couldn't get the parts or the Mexican borders were closed down where we were sourcing parts, uh, pressure sensors, for example. So the, the roller coaster ride was really extreme, but through it, it was so enriching because we helped one another through the challenges that we each faced. We'd got a collection of people, all who brought a unique specialism to the table, either their project management capability, their engineering insight, their medical practices and devices knowledge. And it very much was about how do we leverage that capability together? Um, I think that the other thing I would say is um, that a project of this scale, we didn't know where it was going to go. We clearly had an objective from the Prime Minister and we were absolutely committed, like we'd never been before, to deliver on that mission. But the hurdles were incredible. But the physicals of the environment we were in, the borders being restrictive, supply of parts being restrictive, the physical restriction of time. And so technology was really helpful in, in unlocking that. But often we would get together in the evening and it'd been a, you know, a painful, often um, frustrating day of looking to get progress, firing up teams, onboarding suppliers. And often it was it was great just to huddle together and just have a discussion about what we where we got to, what the issues were, and effectively prepare us for the day ahead. And those meetings uh, or those informal discussions were the place that we also exchanged our thoughts about what was working and what was not working. And that became effectively the essence of the success of the programme. The first thing is, I think, the compelling requirement was really amazingly powerful. Um, there was complete clarity about the, why this was important. And so that clarity of purpose really fired the engine and helped get the project the right level of priority that it needed. I think the second thing was having those leaders together, those, those people who really were passionate about achieving and were prepared to stop at nothing to make it happen. And th that team worked in a way that I've not seen before where it was able to transcend traditional levels of an organisation. And, and that, for me, enabled those leaders to add value at a, a very, very detailed level when it was necessary. But then, you know, we're able to sweep into much larger, more fundamental decisions involving maybe tens of millions of pounds of, of decision making. And, and they could transcend that group. That happened, obviously, for the senior team going into the organisations, but also it happened the other way, where some great engineers who were really good at what they did were able to come up and operate successfully in, in some of the bigger decisions. Um, and we very much used the knowledge of those leaders and those engineers and 
having those people with us, having those leaders and those engineers with us was really important. The third step for me was data. Um, none of the companies that we were working with had a system for making high volume ventilators. We, we have some great systems for making high volume cars. The ventilator uh, team at Penlon are able to make low volume ventilators. Siemens are able to make high volume of other systems and Airbus make big aeroplanes. Um, but actually we hadn't got a management system. We hadn't got a, a parts procurement system that would work. So we ended up popping those systems up, uh, putting IT solutions together quickly and bringing the data together. So making that data accessible to all of the team members so that we could very quickly use what data was available to make the right decision. That was very nimble and it worked really successfully for us too. So for me, those were the first two or three building blocks. The next phase was really about experimenting with the process and with the product at the same time. Traditionally, that's not something that a car company like Ford would do. We spend a lot of time at the front end, as do our competitors, making sure that the product is right before we enter production and scale up. We haven't got time for that approach. We needed a completely different mindset. And so what we ended up doing was innovating the product and defining and innovating the process at the same time. So every problem had a chance to delay us. So we need to be operating very, very quickly. And our problem management systems kicked in and allowed us to work very successfully. So that, that way of innovating at product level and at process level was vital too. These are some amazing learnings, Graham. Thanks so much for this. I want to ask you a little bit about culture, you know, thinking about what enabled you to achieve these goals and meet the challenges head on. How important was team culture in the relationships you built as a consortium? The cultural impact of this programme was also phenomenal. Rather than it being a, a can-do culture, it became a will-do culture. Everyone worked together to deliver the outcomes and took the actions, or if they couldn't do it, found someone who could take those actions. So very much that will-do culture started to pervade everything we did. And that really gave confidence because the worst thing you can do is think you've transferred, you've passed the ball on to a colleague or another company, and actually they haven't caught the ball and that delays you. It was very clear that there were no hurdles that were going to get in the way of this team. Um, and that also generated a trust, a freedom and a humour in the programme that was quite intoxicating and really inspiring. So, you know, we'd get up every morning and we'd want to know, everyone would want to know, how many have we built last night? And on that basis, what have we got to do to build more? And the curve always for tomorrow was bigger than the build for today. So we were always chasing greater and greater volume as we went through the programme. So that will-do culture was fuelled by seeing the mountain in front of us and all wanting to run up the hill. Um, our relationship with our customer, um, and the customer in this case was the National Health Service, but also the Cabinet Office of the UK government, they were investing heavily in, in this group of people who they might have known us as individuals, but they didn't know us as companies. They certainly didn't know us as a consortium. And we were looking to spend huge sums of money very, very rapidly and it's taxpayers' money. So they needed to feel much more confident that what we were going to do was the right thing. We were going to obviously operate professionally and that the outcomes were going, to, were going to result in ventilators for the UK people. And so we developed a really strong bond with the Cabinet Office. 
we and they encouraged their operational team to fully engage with the program at a working level. So there was no data in the program that they couldn't access and there were no meetings that they couldn't have their team join. And on that basis, very rapidly, they got to see how decisions were being made, how we were operating. And therefore, the dialogue, the single point of communication which we had at the senior level meant that when we talked, there was data, there was insight inside our customer, with our customer, so that when we talked about a decision, we didn't spend a long time talking about the content or the background or anything else. They knew, their teams knew, and they started to build a stronger and stronger trust with us. And it cuts both ways. Um, when we had a problem, and some of our problems were almost unsolvable, we picked up the phone and often the cabinet office or members of the senior members of parliament would help us um, with international issues. I remember one example where the borders between Mexico and North America were being closed because of COVID-19 and, and significant issues in North uh, Mexico where some of the key components were coming from. And the company involved wasn't able to keep their factory open. They literally said, unfortunately, we've got to close. And uh, with some help from the cabinet office and uh, the foreign office, the UK government were able to demonstrate how important it was. And we, as companies, sent our teams in to help with their COVID protection programme. And together, we were able to keep the factory open very safely. Um, but it kept the supply and it kept us on target. So customer relationships and building that, that bond was so important. And ultimately, that meant we could take bigger risks because we were taking them together. Um, we were able to form relationships with people that had never met before, with companies that had never worked before together. We were able to put agreements together in literally days and weeks that would normally take six months to put together. And ultimately, we were able to deliver a programme that would probably take 18 months to deliver in about 12 weeks. And that was possible because of the people. Um, the trust that you can build, the bond that you can build with people. For me, that was reinvented during this process. And ultimately, the technology, I think, was a key enabler to that. It created that bridge and that closeness that we needed to feel together. You mentioned this was a roller coaster, both with highs and then, of course, the low lows. So what was it that kind of kept you going in those low lows? Uh, the lows were pretty low. Um, and that's really, I think, we were running on adrenaline as, as a team at all levels of the organisation that we set up. Um, it was 24-7 and, and not just for the, the team, the consortium that were involved in the programme, but also for some of our partners like government. I remember times when I was on the phone and on a Saturday evening at, at midnight to some of the key government ministers on solving problems. Um, so those conversations often were really successful but sometimes, you know, we were crashing. We had a problem with a supply issue or something, uh, a technical issue that we needed to solve quickly. So those deep lows were really deep. Because the team was united and feeling so connected, even though we were geographically very distant from one another, I would say each of us 100 miles apart, for example. Um, but we were connected through technology, through Microsoft Teams, we were seeing each other every day, often four or five times a day, and we could start to tell from each other's expressions when we weren't feeling good. Not only was it the language, but it was the expression on our faces. And 
often when I'm feeling great, one of my colleagues was having a tough time getting a supplier solution together. We were able to interpret that and help one another. And so I think this spirit of connectedness, which the technology helped enable, really did mean that we were able to support one another and pull ourselves quickly out of the low lows. I remember um, one example where I'd had a really difficult discussion about the main investments for the programme. And we were talking investments of 70 or 80 million pounds that we had to spend virtually immediately. And we needed liquidity with some of these key suppliers. So this was a big decision for the uh, Treasury to make in the UK. And it wasn't easy for us to demonstrate that this money was going to be spent wisely, a really important issue, obviously. Um, So it was very difficult and we were slipping time, hours and days. Um, But actually, because of the team I had around me, I felt much more confident because they sensed that I was struggling. They reached out and together we got through it. Um, There were other examples the other way and it happened once or twice and then it became how it was. And the thing that I really valued is um, we'll just put a 15-minute or a 20-minute audio or video in place and talk to our colleagues. What happened in this program is often in the evenings, we would try and group together to effectively soak on what we'd experienced during the day, swap notes, make sure that we were leveraging our strengths. And that was a great harmonization as well. That helped those that were feeling uncomfortable to start feeling better and those were feeling great to help pull us all along. So it's very much a team sport. We had some great athletes, but the athletes need refueling from time to time. And it's the rest of your teammates that do that. I think then the the sort of the golden question or the main, I guess, thing people will want to know listening to this, how much of that is adaptable to a project that is not linked to a global pandemic where you've got everybody agreeing on this kind of one main problem everybody putting that as the priority obviously that's not normal business I guess right there's always something else to be done you know employees are not always going to have a I will but I can attitude because we've normally got other stuff going on so what do you think in terms of culture in terms of processes in terms of technology or even just approach to work can be I guess, taken from this experience and utilised in whatever normal is nowadays, as opposed to these kind of crisis situations? I think this is a great question because everything that's in my mind is about how can we, uh, not only the companies in the consortium uh, like Siemens and Airbus and uh, McLaren and Ford, but how can everyone benefit from the experiences that we've had? So we spent some time thinking about those lessons but also some of the challenges. And I think the first major challenge is really creating that truly compelling goal. Um, You're absolutely right. When there are many challenges in a business situation, there are many distractions as well. Setting that goal and making sure that this is really important to the business or to the enterprise is fundamental. You have to take something that you really value, that is really important to you, to your business and to your customers, and you have to experiment with the crown jewels. Um, And so together then there is enough attention, enough belief that if you get it wrong, it's important. Uh, So therefore getting it right will be even more important. Um, The second thing for me is getting the right people, not just who's available. The success of this project is we had the best companies in Britain. 
and the best people in those companies working together and creating this fusion of capability. Um, often in companies, we don't necessarily have the chance to choose the right team or probably more importantly, choose the other companies that we'd like to partner with. Maybe some history exists or traditional relationships or people that have, you know, have just finished one assignment and they're available for another one. We've got to really question that. Uh, a diverse capability really helped in this example. And also being able to choose the people that are going to have maximum impact at a corporate level and at an individual level. We do need to reset the culture in a program like this um, and use this, even if uh, a company has quite a, uh, an innovative or flexible culture today, the mindset shift into this program was re remarkable. And spending time together as we're exploring the outcomes, not necessarily actively focusing on the culture, but recognizing that everything we do is going to drive the cultural outcome we want. So what we can't afford to do is revert back to traditional, maybe uh, old ways of doing things. We have to always be on our guard and always pushing to the edge, uh, always being challenging, always being stretchy about where we're trying to get to. The, uh, the budget and the business case is a lot more difficult to manage when you don't know the final outcome. On this project, we had a desired outcome we didn't know we could get there. We didn't know we could get there in the time. So recognizing that and having finance professionals around you that can help you manage that uncertainty during these complex projects, particularly through the early sprints where you might not be spending a huge amount of money, but you're certainly going to be setting the framework for spending a huge amount of money. So that's very important. Um, involving organizations outside of your core organization we found to be tremendously valuable the IT team for example were essential to create systems as we flew and they were embedded and therefore when we needed a functionality or a piece of pop-up software they created it because they actually understood what we were trying to do straight away we didn't have to contract for weeks and weeks and weeks they were there they knew what we needed they created it on the fly and ultimately I think building a project team that was broad enough to operate autonomously. So we didn't have tentacles into other businesses or other organizations that created a clock speed problem for the core team. The core team had to work fast. It had to work autonomously. And so making sure that the project that we have has the right scope, it has the right ingredients, the right people inside it, and has the authority to work. And we need to be more Let's, let's say we need to be braver as leaders to allow that team to operate more autonomously and take a few more risks. They will fail on parts of the decisions they will make. We did, but we failed very quickly. It's the agile way. We failed quickly, we recovered fast, and we became even more committed to achieve the objective. So really build that autonomous team, give it the right uh, scope. Don't try and link too many connections and dependencies into it and cut it free, let it happen. And it will, I think, produce remarkable results. Graham, thank you so much for both inspiring us with this incredible story, but also for sharing so many actionable insights and lessons from what can only really be described as really an unprecedented project that you guys have been through this year. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you again. 
That is it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find out more about Graham's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people discover the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed. Learn how Microsoft Dynamics 365 Remote Assist enables field technicians to collaborate with experts in a mixed reality environment from virtually anywhere to solve problems in real time. Request a live demo today by following the link in the episode description.